give online at our website, or we can also um, give through text. So if you have questions, please don't hesitate to uh, contact the church office. But um, if you would unite with me in prayer, we're going to kick off with that. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for who you are, and we thank you for the privilege that you have given us to, to worship you and to to gather together, Lord. I ask that you would protect us as we um, as we worship you here, Lord. I ask that you would help us focus on you as we worship you here, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to us today, Lord. We thank you that it is a beautiful day outside, and we thank you how it just points to who you are and your majesty, and, and we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us, Lord, when you sent Jesus to die on a cross for us and rose again on the third day. We ask your blessing on our time together, and we ask your blessing um, on Pastor Tim as he comes. We love you, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would stand with us again as we continue on in worship.
with me. Father, we thank you for gathering us together in this place to sing praises to you, to hear your word that you revealed to us. We pray that we come to your word now, that we would be 
amazed anew at how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much in spite of our sins and failings you reach out and seek after us, that you have made a way for us to be made right with you. And so I pray that we would be stirred in our hearts this morning to give you praise, bring you glory, and to live lives that honor you. Pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is great to be here, gathered with you all. I can't tell you like how long it felt for me to get to this place right now. Right? Like, I look back, and it was November 24th of last year that I got the first email from the search committee asking whether I'd be interested in being considered for this position. And like an open even longer for you as you've waited for your next pastor. So like I'm just excited to be here. And like I, I read that first email that I received, and I like from the moment I read that email and started to read about this church, I really felt like this was a place that I wanted to be. Like I have been reached out to by several other churches in the past and for various reasons they just didn't feel like the right fit. But this church has always felt like a great fit from everything I had heard about it. So we're glad to be here. And for, for the past seven months, I've been hoping and looking forward to the day that I could stand here and preach my first sermon as your next pastor. But in those seven months, as I thought about what it would be like to move here and to come here and looking forward to those things, hopefully, like one thing I never would have imagined or could have thought was just how how welcoming and how kind and how helpful so many of you have been to us in this transition. You've helped us unload our truck. You've provided meals. You've done so much to bless us. And so, like, I don't want to start naming names because I'll forget somebody and I'll offend somebody like two minutes into my first sermon, and I don't want to do that. Right? So just to all of you, just thank you. Like, it's been a great first week. We felt so loved and cared for in our time here. So now if you'll just humor me for a minute and you pretend that you actually remember what I preached my candidating sermon on, if you heard that right, you would remember, of course, that I preached from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And I talked about how having a right knowledge and right beliefs about Jesus fuel all of the Christian life. Now I preached that sermon for, for two reasons. One, because I really believe that rooting our partnership as pastor and church in a right knowledge of who Jesus is is essential to um, a, a good partnership and a good ministry together. But the other reason I did that is because I think the book of John is very, well, the book of 1 John, right, it's very applicable to us as a church today. I think it's a lot of important things to say to us as a church. Right? And so, like my plan, really for the rest of this summer, is to walk through the book of 1 John, kind of passage by passage, as we consider what God has to say to us in that book. And the reason I believe that the book of 1 John is such an important and helpful book for the church today is that John is writing this letter to a church that is facing pressure from the culture and from people kind of related to the church to 
change what they believe for the sake of being more acceptable to the culture as a whole. And that should sound familiar to us. We live in a world that would be happy to let us be Christians if only we stop believing some of the things we believe about ethics and morality. But John's encouragement to the church that he wrote to in this, and God's encouragement, I believe, to us in the face of that opposition, or to be rooted deeply in a knowledge of who God is and who we are and who we are called to be. And then to let that knowledge of who God is and who we are fuel us as we live a life of love for one another. So that's my hope for the next ten or so weeks in First John, that we'll leave that series feeling a renewed, ever-deepening knowledge of who God is, and that, we'll, that love and that knowledge for God will fuel a love for one another. So with that in mind, we're going to jump into our passage this morning. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, follow along, or if you want to grab one of the few Bibles in front of you, you can do that as well. And as you find that place, let me help you get to know me just a little bit by telling you just a little something about myself. So when I was in high school, I was a fairly good student. But like the one class I just never really got into was English. Like my attitude walking into English class every day was like, you knew I was like raised speaking English, right? Like I don't need a class to teach me English. I had no use for knowing the difference between the nominative case and the objective case. I could care less about knowing what a perfect participle is. Like, I can speak and write just fine. Like, there was no point in knowing what these technical terms were. And so when I went to college, and in college I went through the onerous task of taking the one required English course. And the same thing was true. Like, I just had no use for like, knowing any technical terms. Like, I was going to school at that point to be an elementary school teacher. Like, I knew what nouns were. I knew what verbs were. I'd be fine. But then, I went to seminary, and I took Greek and Hebrew, and they made this crazy assumption in Greek classes and Hebrew classes, and that is that you had actually paid attention in your English classes, right? And so that you knew the difference between participles and prepositions. Or like, one of the hardest things about Greek is all the different ways that the Greek language uses participles, right? So it's hard enough as it is, but it's even harder when you have no idea what a participle is, even in English. Like, so I was struggling. Another thing I had to learn was like, what an definite and an indefinite article was. Right? Now, in English, that's not that hard. Right? In English, a or an is the indefinite article, and the is the definite article. Right? But Greek's a little more complex. The Greek doesn't have an indefinite article. They don't have one. But then to make up for it, there's 24 different forms of the definite article. And it turns out that the difference in meaning can be very significant depending on whether a noun is preceded by a or the. Right, so if I tell my wife Vanessa, like, you're the love of my life, that'll go pretty well. Right? But if I tell her you're a love of my life, right, that's not going to be as well accepted. Right? Or like to give a more spiritual example. Jesus is not 
Jesus is not a savior of a world. Right? Jesus is the savior of the world. Right? So whether or not it's preceded by a or the can be very significant. And in our passage this morning, the use of the is once again important. So as I said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 2. So, here's the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our, but for the sins of the whole world. So as we look at this passage, what we see is that John starts by laying out the message that he wants his reader to know, namely that God is light. And then he goes on to give three practical implications that flow out of the fact that God is light. And three ways that God being light should impact the way we live our lives. So this morning, in our time together, I want to just walk through this passage, first thinking about what it means that God is light, and then looking at those three implications to see what John is trying to teach us about how we should live our lives. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention back to verse 5 for a moment and consider John's message for his readers. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Right? So there's that all-important definite article. Right? This is not a message. This is not part of the message. Right? John says this is the message. So what is this message? John says that the message that he heard from Jesus is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what does this mean that then God is light? The imagery of light is used frequently throughout the Bible. We don't have time this morning to look at every way that God uses the imagery of light throughout the Bible. But in the context of this passage, the function of light that John seems to be driving at is that light is pure and it exposes things as they really are. Light, Light illuminates. Light shows the true nature of things. So God, if the creator of the universe, if perfectly good, and he is the ultimate decider of what is good and what is evil, right? he is the objective standard of right and wrong. Right? So there's a lot of talk these days about justice and injustice. Right? Those are important conversations to have. I'm not, I'm not here this morning to address any of those issues. Right? But I, what I do want to say is that the categories of justice and injustice, of equality, of inequality, of right and wrong, of good and evil. Those terms, those words, only make sense 
in a world with an objective standard of justice and goodness. They only make sense when we have some agreed-upon way of knowing what is right and what is wrong. And John here is saying that God, as light, is pure goodness and holiness himself, and therefore, he is the one who is that standard of truth, and he is the one who reveals things as they really are. God is the one who decides and shows us what is right and what is wrong. And that's what John means when he says that God is light. And now he goes on to give us three practical implications of how God being light impacts our life, especially as it relates to sin. And I think the overarching point of all these implications is this. How we respond to sin both in others and in ourselves, right, reveals what we believe about God. How we respond to sin reveals what we believe about God. Now, the first implication we see in verses 6 through 7 when John writes, If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Right, so if I could restate what John is saying here. Right, he's saying, like, don't redefine sin, but instead acknowledge it. When we walk with God, when we walk with the God who is light, then we see things as they really are. And in particular, we see our own sin all the more clearly as sin. But John says we have a choice. We can choose to walk with God in light where we will see our sin as sin. Or we can choose to walk in darkness. And when we do that, right, we redefine our actions and convince ourselves that they're really not all that sinful. So when we, we can choose to walk in darkness and then we redefine our sin by saying things like, well, lying isn't really sin if I'm doing it to protect somebody's feelings. Right? Or... Living together before marriage isn't sin. It's just like a trial run to make sure we're compatible. Like, or anger isn't really sin if it's directed at that jerk who cut me off in traffic, right? or the referee who doesn't know what past interference is. Right? Like, drunkenness isn't sin as long as no one gets hurt. I'm just having a good time with my friends. Right? Or like, abortion isn't sin. It's just a women's rights issue. All of these arguments, all these attempts to redefine sin as something that aren't really sin, like all they are is just an echo of Genesis chapter three. Right? When sin tells Eve, when Satan tells Eve, right? eating that eating that fruit isn't sin. It'll make you like God. We all have a decision to make. Are we going to walk in darkness where we can pretend that our sins are not really sins? Or are we going to walk in light where we see our sin for what it is? And walking in light doesn't mean we never sin. We'll see that clearly in a minute. But what it does mean is that when we walk with God and we know Him, like, we better see our sin. And then, therefore, we acknowledge our sin as sin. And the amazing and the beautiful thing is that when we do that, like when we acknowledge our sin... John tells us that we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all sin. All sin. Not some sins, 
Not minor sins. Not just the sins you justified well. When we walk in light, when we acknowledge our sin as sin and turn to God, John tells us that he cleanses us from all our sins through the blood of Jesus. We have forgiveness when we acknowledge our sin as sin. And when that happens, we experience fellowship with other believers. So often, I feel like I need to be cautious or careful revealing my sins to other Christians because they might judge me or they might look down on me. But John says that it's only when we're walking in the light and our full lives are revealed, sin and all, that we can have real and true and full fellowship with other believers. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And now two things stand out to me in that verse. One, Paul says that Jesus came to save sinners. Not those who redefine their actions, but he came to save sinners. But then second, when Paul writes, of whom I am the worst, that phrase always catches me off guard. Like, I'm always like, Paul, I think you mean of whom I was the worst. Right? Like, yeah, you used to persecute and kill Christians, and that was really bad. Right? But now you're the super evangelist, preacher, like, super apostle. Like, surely you aren't the worst of sinners now. Right? But I think Paul really sees himself, super apostle though he is, as the worst of sinners. Precisely because he is walking so close with God that he cannot help but to see his own sin in the sharpest relief. The closer Paul walks with God, the more evident to him the gap between God's holiness and his sinfulness is. And seeing his sin so clearly is what causes Paul to see Jesus as such a great Savior and to be so motivated to proclaim the gospel to others. And we, like Paul, must not try to redefine our sin. We must acknowledge it as sin. That it's the only way to make progress in the Christian life. So the first implication of God being light is that we must not redefine sin. We must acknowledge it. And we see the next implication in verses 8 and 9, when John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John here is saying, right, don't deny sin, but confess it. John wrote this letter to refute, to refute some false teachings that were going on in the church. And one of the things the false teachers were saying was that you can reach a point in your spiritual walk where you can become so spiritually mature that you basically exist above, on some higher plane, where you're not tempted to sin. And there are certainly groups that teach similar things today. And we should reject any teaching that tells us that we can overcome all sin and completely escape our sinful nature in this life. But the reality is that this teaching is not super widespread today, primarily because it doesn't fit with our own experience. As much as we would love to believe that we could someday reach a point where we don't struggle with sin in this life, experience teaches us that that's not the case. But there's a more subtle way that we deny 
that we have a sinful nature. And that's this. We are subtly denying our sin anytime we blame something outside of ourselves for our sin. We deny when we have, that we have sin when we blame outside forces for our sin. When we blame like, our slothfulness on parents who didn't instill a strong work ethic in us. Or we blame our lust on a culture and a media that, that fuels it. Or we blame our anger on growing up in an angry home. Like, anytime we blame something outside of ourselves for our sin, we're claiming to be without sin. And this habit of blaming our sin on things outside of ourselves once again goes all the way back to the garden. In Genesis 3, God asked Adam, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what does Adam say? Did he say, Yeah, that was, that was bad. Should have done that. Sorry. No, he says, like, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. Right? Adam is saying, like, It's not my fault I sinned. Like, it's not my fault I broke the one rule you gave us. It's the woman's fault. Like, oh, and don't forget God. You put her here. Don't blame me. So then God goes and asks Eve, right? What is this you have done? And she too doesn't say, uh, yeah, that was bad. Right? She says, uh, the serpent deceived me. And then I ate. Right? This pattern of blaming others for our own sin is as old as sin itself. But if we're going to walk closely with God, if we're going to walk in the light, like we must stop it. We must realize that because of that sin of Adam and Eve, that we are sinful in our very nature. Sin is not something external to us. It is entwined in the core of who we are. And our only hope is to be forgiven and purified of our sin. And praise be to God that we have forgiveness and purification at our disposal. All we need to do, this passage says, is to stop blaming outside forces and instead confess our sin. John writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We all want to be forgiven but to do that, we need to stop denying our sin and instead confess our sin and then experience the cleansing and the forgiving love of Jesus. And finally, John says, not only should we stop redefining our sin and stop denying our sin, but he also tells us, don't hide your sin, but instead fight it. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, John writes, if we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Along with redefining our sin, and denying our sin, another harmful way we deal with sin in our lives is that we hide it. And I think this way of dealing with sin is probably the most harmful and dangerous in the church today. 
It's so tempting to want to put on a facade to the watching world and to our friends and to our families and to our church and act like I have everything all put together. Like I'm perfect. My whole life is perfect. I'm always perfectly obedient. Right? It's so easy to want to act that way. Like meanwhile, behind closed doors, like we we're fighting with our spouse or we're battling addiction or we're indulging in violent thought patterns or we're jealous of our neighbor or we're stealing from our employer, either literally or just by not working our hardest. Like we know these things are sin. And we might even be trying really hard to stop doing them. But we think, like, I can't let the church, I can't let my Christian friends know that I struggle with these things. If I do, they'll think less of me. They might even think I'm not a Christian. But John says that the opposite is true. He says that if we hide our sins, if we act like we don't sin, then we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Do you hear that? Like, if you say or you act like you don't struggle with sin, we make God a liar. Like, Christians should be more open and more vulnerable about their sin and their struggles than any other group of people. Why? Because we really believe what John said at the beginning of chapter 2. He says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christians, if we believe that, if we believe that our sins are paid for because Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross to trade his righteousness for our sinfulness, we believe that our sins are really forgiven, right? then that should free us to be honest and open about the sins that are still going on in our lives. Not only is this act of being open about our sin important for our own lives, but our willingness to expose and confess our own sin is also vital for our effort to reach others with the gospel of Jesus. There is nothing appealing to non-Christians. When the, when the impression they have of Christians is that either they always have it all put together or they're always just play-acting and pretending to be perfect. Like we are not a perfect people. And we shouldn't try to send that picture to a watching world. We are a sinful people with a perfect Savior who by His death exchanged His righteousness for our sinfulness so that we can have eternal life. Right? That's the message that we have for a desperate and a needy world. That no matter what you've done, like there is hope and forgiveness available. But that message only makes sense when we're a people who acknowledge and confess our own sin. And when we believe this truth of the gospel, right, not just believe it in our heads, but fully feel how sinful we are and what a great Savior Jesus is, right, and then our faith becomes appealing to those around us. And I want that for this church, and I want that for myself. Right now, super early in my time here, it's really easy to be look to the future and be kind of blindly optimistic about what the future will hold. Right? It's, easy, it's tempting to want to think that everything will always go perfectly well. Right? But if this passage guarantees us anything, right, it's that I will sin 
I make mistakes as your pastor, that some of you may sin against me or against each other. So my hope for my ministry is not that we'll all get along perfectly all the time, but that we will all grow in being a people who confess sin, who forgive others of sin, and who help one another to fight sin. And fighting and killing sin, ultimately, is the goal of all of what John has written here. John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But the outcome of this process of acknowledging and confessing sin is that we walk in open and confessional fellowship with other believers. Then those believers stand beside us and fight with us as we seek to fight and kill the sin in our lives. Being open about our sin allows us to take the needed steps to make meaningful strides in putting sin to death. It's far easier to fight an enemy that's in the light than one that is in the dark. So my encouragement for all of us is to bring our sins into the light, to acknowledge them to ourselves, to confess them to others, and to fight with all the strength that God has given us to put that sin to death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you that you do not call us to figure things out on our own. You do not call us to attain a certain moral standard once we know Jesus, but that knowing that we have failed, that you sent Jesus to die in the cross, on the cross, in our place, so that by trusting in him, we can be forgiven of our sins. But God, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that they are dealt with, that they are taken care of and paid for, help us to live lives that are honest about our own sin, that we may encourage one another, that we may help one another to fight the sin in our lives. God, as we look and we see all the evidence of sin in the world around us, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the pain, all the sickness, help us to seek to bring hope, to bring healing in the midst of that suffering, and help us to look forward ultimately to the day that you will return and you will deal finally with all the effects of sin and death. We look forward to the day when, when everything is made right, that there is no more sickness, there is no more death. We look forward to that time in the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, help us to fight sin in our own lives, but to seek to bring healing and redemption the sinful and fallen world. Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we close, and my hope, my encouragement, that we go out into our, the rest of our weeks encouraged, that we have forgiveness, that we don't have to live perfect lives, but that we are called to fight, to kill sin, knowing that we, our sins are already forgiven. And so as we get ready to leave, just hear this blessing for the road. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are dismissed. Cheese.